Well, thank you to our musicians, young and old, our storytellers, all the things that make for worship. This morning, or this week rather, as I was thinking about uh, what to speak on, I had, um, I was doing a study on Romans 7, and I was intrigued with the phrase where Paul says, when the commandment came, thou shalt not covet, then this commandment took hold of him. And I thought to myself, when did that happen? And so I started doing a little bit of research, trying to figure out when exactly did that happen? Because here's a man that's been teaching, learning and teaching the law of God for many years. Suddenly that commandment took a hold of him and slew him. So this morning we're going to not go into Romans 7, but we're going to go into Acts chapter 9. So take a Bible and open it to the book of Acts. And before we continue, let's have a word of prayer. Just like Paul needed the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit too, don't we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for being a sovereign God. And you're calling men and women, boys and girls, from all over this globe, Lord. There's billions and billions of people on our planet. And you're calling them to yourself in amazing ways. And this morning we will see perhaps one of the very well-known conversion stories in human history. Help us to take some principles from what you did in Paul's life, Lord, and apply them to our own lives. And we give you the honor and the praise and the glory. Continue to send your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. We want to meet you. We want to know you in a personal, intimate way through our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have Acts chapter 9 open? What we have in this passage is one of the most amazing stories in the whole of Scripture. Because we have a man who was quite self-satisfied in his religion. Quite self-satisfied in his relationship to God. In fact, he says in, I believe, the book of Philippians, as to righteousness, perfect. This young man, probably from the age of 14, had been learning about God, the Bible, and all the ins and outs of the law of God, and when we find him in Acts chapter 9, we find that he is almost frothing at the mouth and so 
angry at Christianity and everything that it represented. And what I'd like to do this morning as we look at how God was able to reach this man and take him from his blindness into the light, I want us to especially notice some of the convictions that this man came under before conversion took place. And to help me to do that, we're going to look at some Scripture. We're going to look at a few things that Ellen White would say in the book, Acts of the Apostles, and, um, and what a few other people have said to help us to understand this. Earlier in the book of Acts, we have had a deacon. Now, I know there's some deacons in the room. So we have a deacon, and his name is Stephen. And Stephen, not all deacons can preach and teach, but Stephen gave this eloquent message to the Jewish people of why Jesus was who he was and why they had and how they had crucified him he was the one the messiah he was the one that was to come and he even said see i i see jesus the risen jesus i see him in heaven do you remember that do you remember that account i, I i'm so tempted to preach that message because it is a powerful powerful message maybe some other time but at least i can help you to re remember some of the points there. And there was a man called Saul. So if I say the name Saul, and if I say, say the name Paul, this morning we're talking about the same man. There was a man named Saul who was very comfortable to allow this man Stephen to be executed. So I want you to think of your faith this morning just as I would want Paul to think of his faith. Does your faith allow you to take innocent men like Stephen and stone them to death? Now, we don't know if Saul ever met the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus was walking on this earth. We don't know if he did or, or he didn't. It's pretty much impossible for me to believe that he had not heard about Jesus. He'd certainly heard about Jesus and certainly heard about Christianity. But he had concluded that Jesus was a deceiver and that he never rose from the dead. But when he saw a man like Stephen die the way he died, Lord, lay not this sin against them, and, and his face was glorified and shone like an angel. And of course, as he said, I see Jesus in heaven. It made an indelible impression on Saul. It was something that got into his mind and he could not get rid of it. Have you ever been in a situation like that? where the Lord is trying to reveal something of Himself and He's kind of pricking you. 
conscience is working overtime. Saul has doubts about whether he is in the right to give the thumbs down to this death of Stephen. And when they rounded up other Christians and had them moms and dads and boys and girls, can you imagine taking uh, the Chamberlain family, for example? Most of them were up here this morning. We thought you would come up and sing with them, but maybe some other time. And, uh, and just throwing the parents in prison, maybe having them executed. What would happen to those children? I don't know what they did with the children. Terrible thing to do, don't you think so? Wicked, wicked, evil thing. All in the name of the Jewish religion. So when we read Acts chapter 9, we are reading about one nasty individual who is playing havoc in the early Christian church and is destroying Christian families. In Acts 9 it says, Meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. This guy was hot. Despite the doubts, maybe because of the doubts, some people, when they're coming under conviction, behave in extreme ways. Wouldn't surprise me at all if this was the case with, with Saul. So he's breathing these murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if, if he found any there who belonged to what? I can't hear you. The way. I hope you're opening the Bible when I share this with you. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Christianity was called the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. People who followed Jesus Christ were different. So they were called the way by their, probably by their enemies. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, so day one, day two, day three, he probably walked there with a group of others to Damascus. Damascus is a city that I visited, one of the oldest cities in the world, continuously inhabited cities in the world, if not the oldest. There's a lot of a lot of history, a lot of tradition there. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and a voice spoke to him. Now, many people in the 21st century will just dismiss this story right there before we ever get to the main point, because they don't believe in the supernatural. And they don't believe in voices that just speak to you out of thin air and bright lights, unless they're into UFOs and something like that. Then they probably believe in strange lights in the sky. I have a really interesting article that I should bring into a sermon sometime about a college Bible professor who always had a hard time with Christians who said, well, the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. Now, we do have to be cautious when people claim this and claim that. But I've 
heard heavenly voices a number of times in my life, and I'm sure that some of you have too. And when a Jewish person would hear the heavenly voice, they listened. So he fell to the ground and a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that's what he was doing. If your faith and your religion leads you to persecution, you're on the wrong track. And we can persecute one another with our criticisms, with our doubts, or whatever. So who's speaking here? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now Jesus is in heaven. You might think of the phrase in Revelation in chapter 12 where the man-child goes up to heaven. No one's going to touch him in heaven, are they? He's not being persecuted in heaven, is he? So what's it talking about here? His people, it's already clued us in in the early verses of the chapter. When you touch Christians who are the apple of God's eye, it's like poking God in the eye. You hurt a Christian, you hurt God. You criticize a Christian, you criticize God. Jesus identifies with His people. This, by the way, not the main point of this sermon, but a, but a very important point. If you're ever trying to understand about uh, suffering and why, why this happens to, why bad things happen to good people, and so on and so forth, always try and understand it from the context of God is suffering with His people. God is not aloof. We don't believe in a, in a God who is aloof to the pains and the woes of the human race. And the, the clearest picture we have how God enters into our suffering is on Calvary's cross. That's just an aside for the moment, but a very important point. So here's this man, Saul, who has this tremendous hatred for this false religion that, in his opinion, is trying to destroy Christianity. And his crimes were pretty bad. In fact, they couldn't be much worse. Innocent people being punished and even being exterminated. That's the past of the Apostle Paul. Now, most of you know the rest of the story. But what if you didn't? What if you were the one who would look at someone like Saul, was he zealous? Tremendously zealous. But he would be looked on like a terrorist today. And when, when some of the early Zionists were fighting for their, their piece of turf in the Middle East, the British looked on, on many of these individuals as terrorists. 
Later they became maybe prime minister of Israel or something like that and got, got into, into good and regular standing somehow. But while they were fighting for their independence, they were considered as the enemy. What would you do with a man like Saul? And it's interesting to see how the sovereign God pricks, goads, via conscience, via doubts in this man's mind, via a godly example of somebody being martyred, uses unusual ways to convict this man that he's in the wrong. And then eventually, this tremendous manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to him as brighter than the sunshine. Now believe me, the sun shines bright around Damascus. And especially if you're in a desert situation, which you are until you get near, near the city. And then, of course, not only the bright light, but the voice confronting this man and saying, Saul, when you hurt and touch those Christians, you are doing it to me. Imagine devoting your life to worshiping God. And the reality is that at this point in his life, he has totally lost his way and is actually persecuting that same God. It's not enough to be religious, is it? It's not enough to be zealous, is it? It's not enough to think that you have all the answers and you're right and you're, you're a good Bible-thumping person. There's probably not a one of us in this room that could take Saul on in debate and win. I believe that Stephen could, and I believe that Stephen did. And that was also probably one of the things that bothered Saul, that they couldn't really answer this man, Stephen. So anyway, you will be told what you must do. So the man traveling with Saul stood up there speechless, they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he had opened his eyes, he could see how much? Nothing. Whoa, is this the judgment of God upon him? So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and ate. He did not eat and did not drink anything. Bear with me as I take you through a little, a few pages of Acts of the Apostles. I'm not going to read it word for word. I'm just going to hit some of the key words that, from Ellen White that helped me to understand this conviction process that went on in Saul's life. She talks about him being a prominent Pharisee. Roman citizen by birth, Jewish by descent, Jewish mother, Jewish father, who wanted the very best education for this young man. And I know as parents, that's what you want for your children. And so, so he was sent to Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And we know that Gamaliel was a devout, incredibly clever man. 
Now, this young man, Saul, is brilliant. He stands out in the class. He's the creme de la creme. Top of the notch, top notch. And so the way she says is here, well, he, she quotes Philippians 3, which I mentioned earlier. A Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So as far as he was concerned when he was a Pharisee, he really had his act together. As this man is approaching Damascus, he is smug in his self-righteousness. This guy is going to strike a blow against Christianity. He's going to score a lot of points with his, uh, the rulers there. And he was regarded by the rabbis as a young man of great promise, and high hopes were cherished concerning him as an able and zealous defender of the ancient faith. His elevation to membership in the Sanhedrin Council placed him in a position of power. They say absolute power can corrupt how much? Absolutely. So this is going to his head. But that part I'm not so concerned about. It's more the conviction part that intrigued me. Saul had taken a prominent part in the trial and conviction of Stephen. And the striking evidences of God's presence with the martyr had led Saul to doubt the rightness of the cause that he had espoused. So his pharisaical position against Christianity, he's starting to, to doubt that. Why? Because he has seen a godly man die a godly death. His mind was deeply stirred. In his perplexity, he appealed to those in whose wisdom and judgment he had full confidence. The arguments of the priests and the rulers finally convinced him that Stephen was a blasphemer and that the Christ whom the martyred disciple had preached was an imposter and that those ministering in holy office must be right. So here's this incredibly brilliant young man who is getting advice from the wrong sources, and despite what his mind and his conscience is telling him, or suggesting to him, these leaders are saying something different. Which way is he going to go? And there's not a one of us that hasn't faced that in our life, and maybe still is facing that to some extent. So not without severe trial did Saul come to this conclusion that Christ and Christianity was false. But in the end, his education, his prejudices, his respect for his former teachers, his pride of popularity braced him to rebel against the voice of conscience and the grace of God. Do you know anyone that's in that valley of decision? who's trying to decide for or against Christianity? She talks of his zeal being a mistaken zeal. And then she talks about this appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to him. Now listen to this. Filled with fear and almost blinded by the intensity of the light, the companions of Saul heard a voice. They saw no man, but Saul understood that the words 
the words that were spoken, and to him it was clearly revealed the one who spoke was the Son of God. In the glorious being who stood before him, he saw the crucified one. This is the one who he had said was a, was a blasphemer, was, was false, was an imposter. Upon the soul of the stricken Jew, the image of the Savior's countenance was imprinted forever. So when you hear text, for me to live is Christ, boom, it's indelibly imprinted in his mind. He will never forget that Damascus Road picture of Jesus Christ. The words spoken struck home to his heart with appalling force, and into the darkened chambers of his mind there poured a flood of light revealing the ignorance and the error of his former life and his present need of the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Well, the whole section there is, is worth sharing. But can you, can you imagine the kind of uh, conflict that this, this man is going through, thinking you are so absolutely right, but, uh, but there are these gnawing doubts. There is this conscience that is working, saying, perhaps, maybe you're not quite so right, and yet you go under the uh, full, uh, zealous, persecuting spirit to round these people up, and then boom, you're confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this journey into Damascus is going to turn out very different than Saul in his wildest imagination could ever dream. I'd encourage you today to um, think about your own conversion as we talk about Saul's conversion. And I would imagine that if we ask those that were converted in this room about how God brought them to Himself, we would hear many, many different ways that God had done it. Listen to this one by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a, an Englishman. Don't hold that against him. Very clever Christian writer. His uh, background was English literature. He taught at one of the great universities in England with that. So... We're talking about a man that had a great intellect, just like Saul had a great intellect. I don't know if these are the hardest people to reach, but God had his way of reaching C.S. Lewis. Here's a few things that he says about his conversion. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Saul's. He says, Sensing God's relentless pursuit of him, he likens God to the great angler playing his fish. He likens God to a cat chasing a mouse, to a pack of hounds closing in on a fox, and finally to the divine chess player maneuvering him into the most disadvantageous positions until in the end he concedes checkmate. Talking about the freedom in responding to God, because the question arises, did God force Saul 
to follow him? Or did Saul have a choice? Now, if you talk with with, uh, Reformed Christians, they will talk about the sovereign side of God. If you talk with Seventh-day Adventists, they'll talk about our decision-making. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets, even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent, that I am more inclined to think this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most I have ever done. Necessity may not be the opposite of freedom. And perhaps a man is most free when instead of producing motives, he could only say, I am what I do. If we don't see the sovereign act of God in this conversion of Saul, we have really missed an important point. At the same time, God does not force Himself upon us. Saul had to make his choices. And as hard as it was for him, when he was confronted with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, in his glorified form, he says, Lord, what will you have me to do? In other words, the evidence is irrefutable. And so he makes his choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if at this point Saul is converted. I think conversion is more of a process. We think of sudden conversions. There is really no such thing. It seems that way. When I tell my story, it certainly seems that way. Most people would conclude from this account it's very much a sudden conversion. But I believe that Christ had been working for years and years and years. In fact, in another place, making a different point, Saul says, uh, from his mother's womb, God called him to his ministry. There's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot of things that we don't quite understand. God confronts him. He pricks. He prods. King James, he goads. He's going to get his man where he needs to be. The evidence is going to be overwhelming. Most of us don't see Christ 
and most of us don't visibly or audibly hear the Lord Jesus Christ, but I believe in our souls we do, do we not? And we have to respond. And C.S. Lewis, is, is, he calls himself one of the most reluctant converts ever. And yet when you see how God used that man, and as he, of course, used Saul in such an amazing way, God got his man. God gets his woman. And yet, there is the free choice to respond positively or negatively. So we've looked at the crimes of Paul. We've looked briefly at his conversion. If his conversion is a process, then maybe those three days of fasting, of prayer, can you imagine the kind of guilt that this man must have had? No wonder he mages on righteousness by faith the way he does in his writings. It's not just because he went to a place like Arabia after his conversion and, and his baptism, and he was obviously taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love to have Jesus Christ discipling you? Jesus Christ discipling you. What a great, great thought. But this man had committed great sin. Was it so bad that God couldn't forgive him? So for three days, he's wrestling with this. Probably seeing the, the, the face of Stephen. He's probably hearing the voice of Stephen. He's going over those arguments of Stephen. And lo and behold, for the first time in his life, it is making sense. Stephen was right. Stephen was true. Saul had totally missed the point because of his prejudices. Because of the bad advice that he was getting. Because of his misunderstanding. Because he never saw the spirituality of God's Word and God's law. And when that commandment came to him, the one he had read and expounded thousands of times and grabbed a hold of him, and said, see, the Pharisee prided himself on, on what, it's what I do. If I've not taken someone's wife, how could I possibly have committed adultery? Jesus comes along. You want to know why they hated Jesus? Well, here's one of the reasons why. Jesus comes along and says, if you cherish the thought, it's like committing the act in God's eyes. Not in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, in God's estimation. If you want to know what sin is, sin is something that goes into the very depths of the mind of an individual. It's not just what we say or what we do. Pharisees never saw that. They fought Jesus tooth and nail on that. Some of them did see it by the day of Pentecost, but it was a hard lesson to learn. And if, we, if you and I have been ingrained in a, in a certain uh, perspective towards the Bible, maybe a legalistic perspective or maybe an extremely liberal perspective, it's very, very hard to get the middle of the road and to find the balance of what God is really wanting to say and to do in your life. So righteousness by faith. That God will not only forgive the sins 
of the worst sinner, but he will declare that individual righteous in his sight was a tremendous truth that Paul basically laid his life down for, as I believe Jesus Christ did too. So he has three days to think it through. And Ellen White says this was tremendous soul-searching for this man. And finally, he has a sense of peace. He has a sense of presence of God. And a man named Ananias comes along, and God uses Ananias to put the stamp of approval, so to speak, on this man Saul. Let's wrap it up here. In Damascus, verse 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, get real. Are you serious? Everybody knows the reputation of this man Saul. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. It Was that correct or not? Absolutely correct. But the Lord said to Ananias, Ananias, go! Imperative. No discussion. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And suffer he did. And anyone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ and is converted by the Lord Jesus Christ will suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, ah, music to the ears of Saul. He is being called a brother by a Christian for the first time in his life. Do you think that comforted him? Not you rascal Saul. Do you know what you've done to the church? One of my aunts, one of my uncles, one of my grandparents was destroyed by you. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. You and I are not filled with the Holy Spirit when none of His. It's not just a matter of getting converted, is it? It's a matter of being discipled and becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ in character. And it's God at every step of the way. This is why He is sovereign. This is why He must get all the honor and the glory. Jesus was sent to do His part. The Holy Spirit was sent to do His his part. So here he is emphasized. And of course, in the book of Acts, with Dr. Luke, who wrote this, the Holy Spirit is, is everything. Jesus Christ is prominent, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Holy Spirit is prominent in the book of Acts. It's not that Jesus is not prominent. 
But the Holy Spirit is sent to carry on the work of Jesus. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales from his eye, fell from his eyes. He could see again. He got up and he was what? Now did Paul or Saul really need to get baptized? Well, the text doesn't tell us that. It just said it happened. It's what it's supposed to happen to somebody that's converted. You see water and you want to get in. When I first visited Seventh-day Adventist Church, that was the first thing I saw. Water. The baptismal tank was full. The Holy Spirit was saying to me, what are you waiting for? Get in there. Pastor wasn't thinking that. Church members weren't thinking that. But the Holy Spirit was saying, I have prepared you for baptism. That's what you need to do. So we get baptized of the Spirit, right? We follow that up with baptism by water. See, it's really not got anything to do with understanding why. But it has everything to do with the unction of the Holy Spirit. When a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, then and only then can they start to do the things that are pleasing to God. Later may come the understanding. For some of us, the understanding won't come until we meet God face to face. I've never thought of Christianity so much as a belief system of understanding. I don't understand how Jesus can be born of a virgin. I don't understand how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be God and dwell within me. And I certainly don't understand how such a, a rebel sinner like me should be con converted and forgiven and declared righteous in his sight. There is, when you think about it, there's much that you and I don't understand, right? And yet we believe it. Is it ridiculous so we can't understand it? No. But this is not based upon intellect. It's not based on who can quote the most verses of the Old Testament. I'm sure that Saul could do that way better than any of us, even now, as we've followed Christ for years and years and years. But it's everything to do with this anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, he, took, he was baptized, he took some food, he regained his strength, and the text says he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogue. So here's one other element that's important, and it's a good place that we can conclude on, that when this man is filled with the Holy Spirit, we've seen that he's been convicted, we've spent quite a bit of time on that. Don't be discouraged. I know it's so easy to get discouraged, but don't get discouraged when you have loved ones who get antagonistic to you. It could be the evidence that God's Spirit is working in their lives and stirring something up. Then, of course, we see the tremendous conversion of this man. Despite the terribly wicked things he did, God saved his soul. Praise God for that. And now the passage, or this section of the passage is ending, that after his anointing of the Holy Spirit, his being baptized of water, him being called a brother, a saint, a child of God, he starts to preach. 
That's where the witness comes in of the Christian. This, I feel, is the weakest area in the Anderson Church. It's the weakest area in most Adventist churches. Is it because most of us are not converted? Well, I don't know if I want to go there. It's something we need to examine our own soul. But we can clearly see from this passage, and I do not think this, this is extraordinary. If you work your way through the book of Acts, if we did a series on the book of Acts, you'd see this constantly. God confronting people, some of them getting saved, and then the proclamation. And it's not because this man was a great preacher or anything like that, even though he was a great preacher. It's because the Spirit of God needs an outlet. God is doing something wonderful in your life. Shouldn't it be normal that we share that with other people? You ladies, if you fall in love with a man, it's rare that you keep it quiet. Right? You know something of that. So here's the witness comes in. So it says in, uh, what verse did we get to? In verse uh, 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. What? what are you talking about? This is the man that was sent to round the Christians up. Now he's proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. All who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the, his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to one of the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, that means the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. It's Jesus. One, um, I think it was an English uh, clergyman was said once, wherever Paul went, there was, there was a riot. And wherever I go, they offer me a cup of tea. <laughs> Let's have some riots, folks. Let's stir Anderson up. Let's allow God to use us, Reading, wherever we live, to share the, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God. And only in Him can people be made right with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this amazing book, the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. Maybe we should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Amazing things that you're doing to confront people. Lord, you've done amazing things in our lives too. We thank you. We praise you for that. Lord, help us not to, to become too comfortable with this salvation that you've given to us. Now keep us on the cutting edge of uh, appreciating you, thanking you for your goodness, for the amazing things that you've done in our lives, Lord, and, and give us the confidence Whatever we need, Lord, to share the good news of you with people in our community. May we be taught of the Holy Spirit, Lord, so we find a way of doing that. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.